Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Moms, happy Mother's Day. I would like to extend a very special happy Mother's Day to my beautiful wife, Jackie, who's at home caring for our two sick kids. Babe, I love you. Thank you for our Zoe and our Zachary. Happy Mother's Day. And also to my mom, who's been heroically battling cancer for over 10 years. Mom, you're at home also. I love you. Thank you for me. Friends, please open your Bibles for the reading of Scripture. Our text this morning is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge." There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. How many of you enjoyed paying your taxes last month? We've all heard that joke that there are only two certainties in life. What are they? death and taxes. We can't escape death. We certainly can't escape taxes. Eventually death comes your way. You have no choice in the matter. Eventually taxes come your way. You have some choice in the matter of paying them, but let's be honest, it's not much of a choice, right? The point is is that some things in life are inevitable. I think that in this passage that we're looking at together today, James kind of presents to us 
three spiritual inevitabilities in this life. No matter who you are in this life, you must choose one friend, you must follow one master, and you will meet one judge. Let's look at these inevitabilities together. First, you must choose one friend. James begins this section of scripture with a question. He asks his original readers, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So as we kind of like hold this question up and look through it as though we're looking through a window, we can kind of just catch the briefest glance of at least some of the problem that James was confronting in this letter. And amongst other things, uh, one thing that James is confronting is the fact that these Christians were at odds with each other. And James is concerned um, because he knows that their fighting and their quarreling don't look very much like Jesus. As he writes to them, He's aware that they are exhibiting symptoms of spiritual disease. And so like a good physician, James takes care to diagnose their symptoms. Look at how he begins to diagnose them. In verse 1, he says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So James begins with the acknowledgement that the problem they have begins inside of them. All throughout the Bible, we see that sinful people need to be changed and need to be cleaned from the inside out. Amen? Now, notice how James describes the relationship between the internal and the external. Sin of the heart always produces sin with the hands. He points to passions within them, passions that are at war. He notices that everything that's going on in their hearts is directed towards those passions. Going back to verse 2, he says, You desire, that's internal, and do not have, so you murder. You covet, that's internal, and you you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Obstructed desires leading even to something as grievous as murder. Now, I don't really know if these people were running around murdering each other. That seems unlikely to me. I think probably James is exaggerating. He's being hyperbolic. James was the the half-brother of Jesus, and Jesus said that to hate your brother is to murder him in your heart. But I think that uh, James's point is that sinful desires, when they're left unchecked, And they go unfulfilled, work themselves out catastrophically. And notice the cascading disorder. Even their prayers are kind of dubiously motivated. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What's like the most basic instruction that Jesus gives to us about prayer? The most basic instruction that Jesus gives to us about prayer is that our prayers need to have the right direction. God's people are to pray in the direction of God's glory. We're to pray in the direction of God's will. 
Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we pray for his kingdom, what we're praying for is his rule, not our rule. When we pray that his will would be done, we're praying that his passions would be fulfilled, not mine. Now, I think that one of the reasons God doesn't answer our prayers, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is because they're not motivated by a desire that mirrors God desi- what God desires. Our, our desires that motivate our prayers sometimes run in the opposite direction. How many of you would acknowledge that sometimes your prayers run in a different direction? I read that the last words of the Puritan Richard Baxter present to us a perfect model of prayer. Lord, what thou wilt, where thou wilt, and when thou wilt. But all of this really leads us to this central question that James is presenting in these first six verses. And he kind of packages and deploys this question in the language of friendship. The question he's asking is, what kind of friendship is provoking such warring passions? What kind of friendship is leading to these fights and quarrels? What kind of friendship is producing such sin? And the answer, James tells them, is friendship with the world. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is like one of the strongest rebukes in all of the New Testament. And kind of packaged into this rebuke, James slides forward across the table this mutually exclusive relationship. To be a friend of this world is to be an enemy of God. And contrapositively, to be a friend of God is to be an enemy of this world. James is saying, you must choose one friend. They're opposed allegiances, so you can't choose both. How many of you love someone dearly? It's Mother's Day. (laughs) Maybe also, in addition to your mother, you love a spouse or a sibling, maybe a son or a daughter, or in my case, both. Let me ask you a question. Could you truly be friends with someone who hates that person you love? Could you truly be friends with someone who is their sworn enemy? Could you truly be friends with someone who stands against everything that your loved one stands for? Could you do that in good conscience? That's why James says, you adulterous people. You see, the problem with these kind of like self-identifying Christians is that they wanted to have Jesus... And also the world that stands against him. They wanted to have the approval of the world and also the approval of Jesus. They wanted to speak like the world and also speak like Jesus. They wanted to live according to the wisdom of the world 
but they wanted to claim the wisdom from above. They wanted to enjoy all the things of the world while simultaneously enjoying all the things they could from God. And they looked and sounded a lot like the world. James rebukes them for partiality like the world. He rebukes them for selfishness like the world. Their friendship with the world made them look like the world. They were worldly. And that's why they behaved the way the world behaves, which like, you know, as we look back, hopefully not with too condescending of a gaze, was so unlike Jesus. Friends, in what ways is this true of you? In what ways have you struck hands in agreement with this world? Are there any spheres of your life where you have pledged your allegiance to it? What hopes and desires and pursuits and pleasures have assumed God's rightful place in your heart? Are there any sinful behaviors in your life right now that kind of flow out of your relationship with the world? Matthew Henry was a Welsh Puritan who lived in the late 1600s and the early 1700s. And he said this in his commentary on this text. A man may have a competent portion of the good things of this life and yet may keep himself in the love of God. But he who sets his heart upon the world, who places his happiness in it, and will conform himself to it and do anything rather than lose its friendship, he is an enemy to God. It is treason and rebellion against God to set the world upon his throne in our hearts. Friendship with the world makes one an enemy of God. You are either a friend of God or you are a friend of the world. There's no third option. You must choose one friend. James is not finished. Jump ahead to verse 6. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Are you still with me? Now, laying aside for just a moment the good news of God's grace, we need to consider God's disposition towards the proud. The proud insist on going their own way. The proud insist on being their own authority. Psalm 10.4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are There is no God. God is opposed to the proud because the proud are opposed to him. Can you imagine being opposed by God? Do you think that you stand any chance against him? Another pastor whose work helped me to process some of this passage offered these brief reflections. I want to kind of pass them back along. Can you imagine that for just a little bit of, pro- of approval from your friends or your coworkers, m- many of whom may not even be with you tomorrow or next week or next year, can you imagine that maybe just for a little bit of their approval that you'll decide that you'll be opposed by God? 
You know what our pride does? It lies to us. It tells us that this world is worth having God as an opponent, doesn't it? What do we know about this world? This world is passing away. Will this world stay faithful to you? It will not. But God is always faithful. And he'll never pass away. And so we should take the opposition of the world and we should keep the friendship of God regardless of the cost. Amen? Maybe your life is hard right now because you're proud. Now I want to be clear. If your life is hard, it does not necessarily mean it is because you're proud. But it is possible that because you are proud, your life is hard right now. Maybe God and his providence brought you here today to confront your pride. Maybe your life is broken because you have actually thought that you could be successful in opposing God. Maybe your life has come to a grinding halt. Maybe your life has utterly collapsed because God is opposing you. Notice that with these people James is writing to, their friendship with the world gave rise to sin where? In their relationships, fighting and quarreling. Are you with me? What about your relationships? Has your friendship with the world led to discord in your marriage? Has your pride disrupted some of your closest relationships? Has it alienated your children? If any of these things rings true, then maybe God is opposing you. Let me ask you a question, friends. Who is going to win that contest? The bad news is, not you. The good news is, James says, he gives more grace. Amen? But he gives more grace, verse 6. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the who? To the humble. The solution to their sin that James is confronting lies in humbling themselves before God who will then give them grace to change their desires so they no longer have to fight and quarrel. As we think about those Christians and as we think about us today, we should ask, what is the solution to our friendship with the world? How do we escape being opposed by God? How do we move from being God's enemy to being God's friend? Well, James says that God gives grace to the humble. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then I want to invite you to consider these words. God is perfectly holy. He alone determines right from wrong. He alone is morally perfect. And he alone never departs from what is right and true. That is why he opposes pride. In our pride, we act in his place. We act as if we're God. We do things for our own glory, not for his glory. And that's 
That's what sin is, right? Sin is when we kind of usurp his divine prerogative. Sin is when we, we violate this, this creator-creature distinction. And because God is good, he will judge us for our sin. He will oppose us forever, scripture says. And because we are all prideful and because we're all guilty before this holy God, our only hope is that God himself could make a way out for us. Our only hope is what God has done for us in Christ. And what has he done in Christ? The eternal son of God took upon himself human flesh. He took upon himself a human nature in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And we look back to Jesus and we see that in his humanity, he never argued with his father. He never quarreled with his father. He never acted out of his own selfish ambition. He never betrayed any kind of internal bitter jealousy because there was none. He never insisted on going his own way. He never tried to usurp his father's prerogative. He lived a perfect life, a perfect trust, and a perfect God. Jesus was so perfectly humble that he humbly took our place on a cross. He humbly took our punishment upon himself. He willingly assumed the due consequences of our pride, of our rebellion. What do we celebrate together just a couple weeks ago, church? Which is a, a, a celebration of what event in history? God raising Jesus from the dead. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he announced to the cosmos, he announced to the universe, he announced to humankind that Jesus' sacrifice was enough for us and that it had been accepted. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4 that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Friends, you know what that means? That means that you can be forgiven for all of your opposition to God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can be forgiven for all of your envy and fighting, and selfish ambition, and quarrels. And you can be forgiven because of what Christ has done. There's nothing that you need to add to his finished work. The good news is that God has more grace than you have pride. And he has made that massive ocean of grace available through his son. But you must choose one friend, either Christ or the world, but not both. Next, you must follow one master. How many of you want God to oppose you? It's good, no hands went up that time. That was it's the one time at Hope Chapel we don't want any hands to go up. If you don't want God to oppose you, look at the next verses. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I think, after studying this text, that this is one of the clearest summons to repentance in all of the Bible. And this summons to repentance begins 
with a call to submit. James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We don't really like that word today. The word submit means to subordinate oneself, to be, to be subject to another, to subject oneself, to recognize some kind of pre-existing proper ordering of relationship. To submit to God is to surrender to God his rightful and primary place over your life. James says that repentance begins with submitting to God. One question each of us should ask ourselves this morning as we're kind of confronted and challenged by this text is, have I really, truly, fully, actually submitted my life to God? Have I totally surrendered my will to his will? Are you with me? Yeah? Okay. Thanks, Serge. Okay, good. I, I want to ask for just like a few seconds of radical focus. Can I ask for that? Look at how James organizes the next four verses. First, they begin and end in parallel fashion. The imperative of verse 7 mirrors the imperative of verse 10. He says, Submit yourselves, humble yourselves. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Do you all see that parallelism? And so this section, these four verses, are very much what we could call a humility sandwich, where James begins and ends with these parallel calls to yield to God. Submit yourselves Humble yourselves. And all of the commands that are kind of sandwiched in between those two appeals to humility describe what true repentance looks like. But when we begin to think about repentance, we need to first see that repentance is always wrapped in humility. Second, James describes repentance in this series of three movements in the middle of that sandwich, beginning with resisting and drawing near. Resist the devil, draw near to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you see that movement? And contrary to the foolish and vain speculations of our culture today, James affirms that the devil is real, that he is a personal and powerful spiritual being, and that he must be resisted. Resist here is a military term, which means to stand against, to, to line up against, as in battle. How do we stand against the devil? Well, what has James just said? We stand against the devil by standing in the grace of God. Notice the parallelism more than the ordering of those two statements. You see, the emphasis is not on these actions being sequential, but on them being parallel and simultaneously. You do not resist the devil and then draw near to God. You resist the devil by drawing near to God. We need to see that safety 
is always and only found in proximity to him. And friends, that's why it is important to be around other Christians. This is why it is important, imperative, to nourish your soul with God's words. This is why it's important to cultivate a regular prayer life, approaching God daily from a rightful posture of dependence. This is why it's important for us to gather together as his people, as this local church, every weekend, every Sunday, amen, and hear his truth proclaimed and therefore be encouraged and reminded that our lives are not reducible to the sum total of our passions or our experiences or our successes or our failures, but that our lives have been purchased with a price and they have been factored into a much greater and a much more comprehensive and a much more worthy and a much more powerful redemptive story. You can't lone ranger the Christian life. You can't like, oh, I'm just going to me and he it, you know? Just me and Jesus, man. It's prideful to think that you can do that. And the devil will exploit your pride. Oh, I'm okay over here on my own. No, you're not. I can do this Christian life by myself. No, you can't. The devil's strategy against you is always the same and it is simple but lethal. Isolate, then destroy. This word from James is a reminder to us that this world we live in, it is a theater of spiritual war. And we do not primarily do battle against our biology though it is fallen and prone to sin. We do not primarily battle against flesh and blood. We do primarily battle against dark spiritual forces who are at work in this world and who are opposed to you because of your friendship with God. Jesus is our example of resisting the devil. Jesus resisted the devil during his temptation by trusting in God's word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus resisted temptation when the devil opposed him by trusting in and depending upon his father's supply. And when we resist the devil as Jesus did, he will flee us, as he did Jesus. When we draw near to God, as Jesus did, he will draw near to us, as he did to his son. Are these not great promises? Great comforts? But everyone has two choices. Yield to the devil and the influence of this world, draw near to God and humble yourself before him. Each choice leads to a different master. Either way, you must follow one master. You can't follow both. Next, and we'll move quickly, James describes repentance in terms of cleansing and purifying. And the emphasis here is on our turning away from our sin. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Do you see that? 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, outside. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, inside. True repentance involves a change of behavior, hands, and a change of will, hearts. And the fact that these statements follow the previous ones show us that it is only by drawing near to God that we can find and experience such cleansing and purifying. It's only through his power, it's only through his presence that our blood-stained hands and our polluted hearts are cleansed. Third, James describes repentance in terms of weeping and turning. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy turned to gloom. How many of you would agree with this statement? Only the true Christian really understands the sinfulness of their sin. When James says, be wretched and mourn and weep, he's describing godly sorrow. Kind scripture says, accompanies repentance. The true Christian experiences a change of mind about their sin. In other words, laughter turns to mourning. Joy turns to gloom. Where it once laughed about its sin, the repentant heart weeps over it. Where it once found joy in its sin, the repentant heart finds only misery in it. And so in these three movements, we see characteristics from James of true repentance, resisting, drawing near, cleansing, purifying, weeping, turning. And he concludes this summons to repentance in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Remember the sandwich. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. James concludes the summons to repentance by calling our gaze to Jesus himself. He says, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord. And I believe he has the Lord Jesus in view. Can I ask you a question? Like three of you. Over in, in the faithful remnant of friends I have left over here. <laughs> Isn't it a great promise that God has promised to exalt the humble? Isn't it a great comfort that we can look to God's unchanging word and therefore know that when we humble ourselves before our Lord Jesus, that he will lift us up? Would you want to be lifted up by any other? Would you rather be lifted up by the Lord Jesus or would you rather be lifted up by this world? Jesus. He is a gracious, compassionate, patient, loving, and faithful master. This world is a demanding, unforgiving, harsh, and fickle master. You must follow one master. So follow the one who is faithful and true. Amen? Amen. Friends, if you have not, humble yourselves before the Lord. I read this week that true Christians are a humble people by definition. And we're humbled even more when we consider all that we've done in our sin, right? How we've each spurned the Lord in our own lives. How we've mistreated him. How we've 
betrayed him, how we've been like Judas, how we've also often gone our own way despite his clear instruction. And we're humbled all the more when we add to that how God has treated us in Christ. Has he treated us according to what our sins deserve? No, he's caused that treatment to fall on his son. And instead, he has treated us with mercy and grace. He's rescued us out of all of our depravity. He's removed all of our guilt. A true Christian is someone who knows what God has done for them in Christ and treasures it deep down in their heart. And therefore has no real ambition or inclination towards envy or jealousy or fighting or quarreling. For the one who has been shown love, it will be their disposition to show love. Friends, which master are you following? Because you must follow one. Finally, you will meet one judge. So here at the end of this text, the last two verses, we see that these people James is writing to, their lack of humility was not only evidenced through their fighting and quarreling, but their lack of humility was also evidenced through their evil speech. Look at verses 11 through 12. Or just 11 to start. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. James uses this term, speak evil. It's one verb in the Greek. It literally means to speak against. It's a compound verb. It could mean to speak ill of, to speak degradingly of. Um, here in the ESV that I'm speaking to you from, it's translated speak evil of. This is also the Greek word for defamation, for slander, character assassination. And like, if you just kind of read through James, you know, we're at the beginning of chapter four and you pay special attention to the sins that he calls out, you begin to see this like real clear pattern emerge. Some of these people that he's writing to had a real profound problem with their mouths. And here that problem is slanderous speech. As we reflect on this, we should ask ourselves, what, what is the Christian standard of speech? Paul gives one to the Ephesians. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So the problem is that James sees the complete opposite of what Paul calls for in these people that he's writing to. And so comparing Paul's standard with James' rebuke, we see that, you know, where Christians are to be speaking good, they were speaking evil. Where Christian words are supposed to build up, theirs were tearing down. Where Christian words are supposed to be gracious, theirs were ungracious. And where Christians' words are supposed to bring life, their words were sowing seeds of relational death. And so we observe this passage 2,000 years removed, and we can say that, man, for people who claim to be followers of Jesus, their speech did not sound very much like his. If we claim to follow Jesus, shouldn't our words follow him also? That was a convicting thought to me this week. 
So James has been kind of posing these questions throughout this passage. What friendship do you have that causes this sin amongst you guys? What master do you follow that exemplifies such pride and arrogance that's evidenced among you? And now the, pa- the question he's packaging is, is what judge do you look to who would allow such sinful speech against one another? Look again at verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. Time to be alert again. You with me? Sometimes you read the Bible and a Bible verse kind of hurts your soul. You know what I mean? Sometimes you read the Bible and a Bible verse hurts your brain. You know what I mean? That's like that. Okay, but it's actually not that difficult. It's actually really simple. So why does James say that if you judge a fellow believer, then you also judge God's law? Why does he make that inference? The answer is actually very simple. Because when you break God's law, you're saying with your actions that you stand above it. I don't need your law. I've adopted a better one. You're judging his law to be wrong. James says that in slandering one another, they've not only kind of stood over each other in judgment, but they've also stood over God's law in judgment. And so he is like asking them, in effect, who made you the boss over it? Who made you the boss, the authority to stand over God's law? And determine which of it is good and which of it isn't. The Apostle John wrote, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. When we sin, we break God's law. And when we break God's law, we also stand over it in judgment. We say, oh, yeah, I see that. Doesn't apply to me. Oh, yeah, I hear you. Doesn't meet my standards. All right, God but that's beneath me. I stand above it. And this is true in all ways that we violate God's law. In our speech, like here in our passage, or in our sexuality, or with our money, or with our time, or with respect to loving one another, Friends, let me ask you a question. Do you stand over God's word? Or do you stand under God's word? Who is your ultimate authority for all matters in life? Now, James says the solution to their perverted sense of authority is to recognize that, look at verse 12, there is only one Lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. And the solution is to humble ourselves before him. How many of you have kind of noticed that humility is a pretty dominant theme in these 12 verses? Has that, has that been clear? 
And James is showing us here at the end of these 12 verses that the key to humility is the recognition that God alone is the supreme lawgiver, that God alone is the supreme judge. And this recognition kind of drives away any foolish notions that we could ever sit in a seat that is reserved exclusively for him. That recognition humbles us. And because he is the supreme lawgiver and judge, we need to recognize that we are not the final judge of our own lives or the lives of each other. James says that he is the only one who is able to both save and destroy. And the reason James says that he is the one who is able to save and destroy is because James knows that one day each and every one of us will meet this judge. That meeting is inevitable. And he is a good judge. And because he's a good judge, he will not turn a blind eye towards our sin. He will deal with all of it, with every sin. He will guarantee that every sin is rightly accounted for, is rightly punished, and rightly paid for. Every good judge upholds justice. No good judge dismisses it. And God is not a sloppy judge. The bad news is that each of us has sinned against this good judge and has therefore incurred for ourselves due penalty. And this supreme good judge will judge us forever. The good news... The good news is that he has executed our sentence against someone else. And Christ has taken our place. So that at the judgment, at your judgment, as James says in verse 12, you can be saved. Friends, the Bible says today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Not the next day, not next week, not next month, not next year. So if you're here today and you are not a Christian, then I want to ask you one final time to turn to Christ now. This salvation that James speaks of, it can be yours. It can be yours. I began with a joke. How many of you remember that? I know it was a long time ago. <laughs> I began by joking that death and taxes are inevitable. But so are death and judgment. And judgment is no joke. You can't redo your past, but Christ can rescue your future. Your only hope of rescue is that someone else would stand in your place on that day. And that is what Christ has done for you. He gave all of his humility for all of your pride. He exchanged all of his righteousness for all of your sin. So friends, remember the promises of this passage. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So do that this morning. Humble yourself. And if you do, if you do, look at all the wonderful things. James says, what happened to you? 
the devil will flee from you. God will draw near to you. And the Lord Jesus himself will lift you up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. Father, I thank you that you humbled me. Your humility is hard, but it is good. I pray for everyone here this morning who's heard these words and who doesn't yet know you, that they would humble their hearts before you, that you would graciously work in their hearts and sow seeds of repentance and faith. Jesus, we thank you for being our stand-in, our substitute. And we prepare our hearts now to remember the great work that you accomplished on our behalf. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.com dot org.